Sydney Students' Union, The Scoop, on Sunday. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Thomas Copeland and this is The Scoop on Sunday. We have a packed show for you tonight, so much to get through. Earlier this week, The Scoop broke the news that Queen's University Belfast Students' Union officers have launched a petition to call a student referendum on whether the SU should support student strikes. I'll be talking directly to Emma Murphy, the SU Education Officer, and picking this issue apart with my guests at the top of tonight's show. With drink spiking becoming a major problem here in Northern Ireland, we'll be looking at how this issue has got worse and what the authorities are going to do about it. And I'll be talking to a young person who was spiked just this week in a Belfast club. Stay tuned for that. COP26, it starts today. But what is it actually all about? We've got a breakdown of one of the biggest summits in our lifetime for you from Scoop reporter AJ Camacho, who will be heading off to Glasgow to report for us in just over a week. Plus, Doug Beattie made a visit to campus for a Q&A event hosted in conjunction with the Literific Debating Society last week. We're bringing you a few sneak peek moments from that event before the full podcast is released later this week. Wow, well, there's so much to get through. It's all here on The Scoop on Sunday. Thank you so much for being with us. Okay, let's get moving. Earlier this week, The Scoop broke the news that Queen's University Belfast Student Union officers have launched a petition to call a student referendum on whether the SU should support staff strikes. If the petition is signed by more than 1.5% of the student population, a student-wide vote will likely be held on the 15th and 16th of November. Now remember, this is because the UCU, the University and Colleges Union, is balancing its its staff here at Queen's and across the UK as to whether they should take strike action that would take place before the start of Christmas and continue into spring semester. However, during this year's student referendum, the QUBSU officers have said that the Students' Union will remain neutral on the issue of striking and will not join any lobbying efforts made by the UCU. According to the online petition, if students vote in favour of supporting the strikes, the QUBSU will support the cancelling of classes, lectures and teaching and will attend and encourage other students to join the picket line. If students vote against supporting the strikes, the SU will not attend the picket line. You can find the full article on this story, including a link to that petition if you want to sign it, on the Scoop social media pages. Right, let's talk about all this now with SU Education Officer Emma Murphy. Emma, thanks so much for being with me. This is a different approach from the SU than it has taken in previous years. The SU has in the past thrown its support behind striking staff unilaterally or asked the Student Council to give it a mandate to do so. Um, Why have you decided to do it differently this year? Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, Thomas, to talk about this. Um, I think that for us, the petition and the eventual referendum is the right move. Um, I think that as representatives, we really want to represent student voices. So that's why I think that it's impossible. It's um, kind of the right move to kind of get that student opinion from as many different voices as possible on this issue. I think that it's one, especially after the past kind of year with COVID and teaching that we really recognise the academic impact that this will have on a lot of different students. So that's why we really want to reach as many as possible to get involved with this and hear their opinion. Um, we really want to be led by the students on this matter. Do you think that the issue was wrong in the past not to go to a student referendum if you've just said that it's the best way to ensure that you're representing students' opinions? I think that as, as a union, we do kind of traditionally have thoughts of solidarity because 
it's just recognizing that we do have policy that really does support the aims of the ECU, especially again, it's 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 kind of continually about issues about the pension and pay and workload, casualization and equality issues. And I think that as well, in general, we do still support those aims of UCU. Um, it's just particularly the strike action that we're really kind of just just wanted to get more opinion on this year, I think it's just... But I suppose what I'm trying to drill down to, Emma, is what has changed mm-hmm. between previous occasions when the SU has decided to back it unilaterally or go to the Student Council, and now when it's deciding to go to a referendum? What do you think is the difference between those two instances? Um, I think that, again, it's kind of the Student Council option is just kind of, again, taking on those opinions that they are elected positions that really take on student views and that they're there to kind of vote on those matters. But I think that in this case, we just really did want to get as many involved as possible, kind of being able to platform that debate because we are hearing so many like polarizing views on the issue that we wanted to take it to as many people as possible. There's one thing to go to a student referendum through the petition that you've launched. It's quite another to say that the issue will remain neutral in that referendum campaign. How can it possibly be the case, Emma, that the issue does not have an opinion on this issue? Um, I think that it's it's just one of those positions where we really want to raise the voices of students that do have a bit more of a um, stronger opinion on it. I think that as much as possible, we want to facilitate those conversations and kind of open that wider discussion to people as well, because it, it's one thing that we're elected into these roles and we don't want to necessarily kind of provide our opinion on them that we we really want to be led by students in our jobs so I just think because, that's why just it's because you put forward an opinion emma doesn't doesn't ban anybody else from expressing their opinion people could no, be very no, free no. to disagree with you that's, so why that's remain neutral true. i think it's just one of those situations that um i think that it's, it's just really an opportunity for students to kind of get involved in our democratic practices. So at the core, the Students' Union is quite democratic. We do have all of these processes in place to, to really get to student values and their opinions on this really topical issue. Um, I think that as well, it, it's just about being informed in our leadership of the current student opinion. I think that, um, again, traditionally, we do have that solidarity, but I think that as well, it's about recognising that given the current circumstances, the amount of impact that it will have on students, that's why we really want to inform yeah. our And there's a pandemic and all that kind of feeds into that as well. Let me just mm-hmm. drill in ever so slightly on the neutrality thing. Is it the SU that's staying neutral, Emma, or is it all of the individual SU officers who are also staying neutral? Yeah, so kind of to explain it, it's, it's not necessarily the SU launching the petition. We're kind of doing yeah. it in our own personal capacity as a student officer team. Um, and again, we're kind of aiming to ballot as well on our own personal social media and, and through those different methods so that it, it isn't coming through student union and using our resources. So we won't be using any of the kind of all school emails or anything like that um, because petitions are open to all students. Petitions can be brought forward to referendum um, and that can be called by any student. So we don't want to almost be in an unfair advantage because of our position. So that's why it's going through that method. Um, but but will all the SU officers be remaining neutral in a personal capacity, Emma? If I 
run through all of your social media pages in two weeks time will i see anything from any of you as to what your thoughts are on how students should vote or all of you remaining neutral as well as the issue yeah it, i think that our position is neutral because it is just aligned with that issue position as well i think that for the most part we do want to kind of like give both sides of the question in our kind of um question in the petition we do kind of give information on both sides of the argument, the ways that this could impact students and the way that if it if it is brought forward to a referendum, the way that a yes or no vote could um, impact students. Um, so therefore, kind of most of the social media around it will remain neutral mm -hmm. as much as possible. What strikes that. me on the online petition, Emma, is that you provide links in it and people can go and read this if they want to do so. And all of about mm -hmm. all of the issues that are at the heart of the strikes from the perspective of the UCU, presumably you've included them because you think they are at least a fair reflection of reality. I wonder then how you can agree because you've posted said links with the facts that, you know, staff pensions are being cut by 35%, 17% race pay gap, 16% gender pay gap, 75,000 staff on insecure contracts. Those are all within the links that you've posted online. How can you agree with all of those things and believe that this is a problem? But not only will you not support the UCU, but you won't even support the UCU position in a referendum being put to students how does that add up um i think it's just one of those um situations where as the ucu ballots its members in their personal choices and their kind of opinion on whether to strike or not that we really are balloting members as well we're providing as much information uh, as we possibly can to inform students on the issue um, and, and just trying to remain neutral so that they can come to their own conclusions. We want to provide that information. Um, but it's also just kind of recognizing that at its heart as well, that we're a student's union, we're informed by student opinions and we're not necessarily a trade union legally within ourselves as well. Let me put a criticism to you, Emma, that might come from a student who disagrees with this policy. Here they are, they say, um, the issue should show leadership. And in this case, what this petition shows is that the student union officers don't want to support the strike, but they're too afraid to say that. And so they decided to put it to a petition, which is unusual instead. What would you say to that? I think that it's about informed leadership. I think that it's about reaching out, recognizing our position and the fact that we should be informed by students first and foremost. Um, and I think that it is a wider stance within other students unions as well that they're kind of in the situation that they're in that there are certain students unions that are also taking the position to either ask wider opinions or outright not support from the beginning so i think that our decision to take a bit more time with it just kind of to really grasp what students want us to do on this position is not a lack of leadership i think that it's 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 empowering students at the end of the day and as we finish up emma the previous justification that has been given for the qub issue to support the strikes was as follows what is in the interests of staff is in the interests of students and students will receive a better education if staff are treated in what they would see as a better way some of those issues we talked about uss pensions pay and working conditions why is that no longer the case i think that at, at, at its heart, we do still support the aims of it. So, but if you support the that, aims of it, why don't you support the strike? It, it's just about the impact that it would have on students. I just think that. But the impact it would have on students the is the same impact that it would have had before the pandemic. 
I mean, the strike has an equal amount of impact, does it not? It's about missing classes, it's about missing lectures, it's not having access maybe uh, to lectures in, in one-to-one sessions. That impact is exactly the same. So why is your attitude different? Again, it's 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 one of those things where it is the situation that we're in. I think that it has been impacted by COVID and that experience coming out of it. I think that students do deserve to have the best experience possible returning face to face on campus. Um, those those kind of educational matters, and I think that it's would just the students not get a better experience if they were if their staff were treated in what is viewed by them as being a better way. I think that it. It's about working with the university as well to to mitigate those impacts on students. So I think that it's just acknowledging that we're here to support students. We're here to listen to their opinion on this matter, um, but that the information is there for for them to make their own informed opinion, whether they can see the impact of that stuff versus the impact that it might have on them day to day. The UCU and, and, and striking students, Emma, as, an, as a second to last question, have typically relied on support from the SU. How do you think it'll change your relationship with staff who decide to strike and the, U, the UCU more broadly if the SU, in a rather unusual move, decides not to back the, uh, the, 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 the staff who are striking? So we have Will it damage the relationship? We, we've been in conversation with UCU over the past few months just about the nature of striking but at the moment because their ballot does not close until the 4th of November it's unclear whether the striking action will actually take place or not yet so it's just one of those positions where our referendum would be in reaction to this um, and, and it's unclear the practicalities of that relationship until it actually does go forward as well. Okay and a final question uh, what do you think the results of the referendum will be Emma? Um, I I, again, to remain neutral on the topic, it's hard to to really kind of understand that before it's happened. I think that the raising the signatures to this petition will really make sure that the referendum does happen. It's an opportunity for students to get involved in our democratic processes and to, to just really raise their voice on the matter. Um, it's, it's just really important to engage with us on this. And I think that if if students that are very pro or against really want to platform that opinion as well this, this is the time to do it and get involved okay emma thank you so much emma murphy there su education officer thank you emma okay well with me now to continue this conversation is aiden lamas editor of the gown and michael upham a final year mechanical engineering students uh, let's go around the houses first, why don't we, Aidan? The guy, and you've taken quite a hard line against these strikes, certainly you haven't been too sympathetic of the SU so far. Uh, remind, us of your, on your, remind us of your take on the potential of strike action and then give us an idea of your thoughts uh, on this move for a student referendum. Uh, my basic opposition to the strikes comes from the fact that we've just gone through a pandemic where students were supported. Um, as I said the last time I was on here, Thomas, if the pandemic hadn't happened, it's quite likely I'd be in support of the strikes. I agree that staff should be treated with respect and dignity. I've always stood by this, um, but it's just not fair on students now uh, to be told that yet again, you may have to miss out on your education at the fault of someone else. And again, not blaming the pandemic on staff or, or anyone else, that would be barbaric, but you know, it's time for students to get what they've paid for. And then with regard to the referendum, I think it's a great opportunity for students to have their voice finally and, you know, without question being heard. 
Okay, Michael, let's let's get your take and then we'll then we'll get into it. Um, potential strike action, first of all, and then the student referendum proposal as well. What do you think? So from speaking with a lot of the staff, I completely understand exactly the reasons why they want to strike. Like they're having such a naff time of it. And I get that it is horrible for students to have that threat of strike action again, but I'd rather have my lecturers in a good place mentally, financially. I'd rather have a lecturer who is able to lecture me the best they can rather than a lecturer who is strained for time or underpaid. But regarding the referendum, uh, I get the issue. Uh, I get the reason for balloting all students. I just think that the union taking a neutral stance, it, it kind of kicks away that solidarity that has always been between the two unions that has always been there in the past. And that, that kind of a, I'm quite well, upset well, why, why, why wouldn't they take a why wouldn't they take a neutral stance, Michael? I suppose the union is saying to the student body, "You guys decide. It's out of our hands. You're involved in the democratic decision making progress process. Why would they launch in with their own opinion, especially when they probably have access to much greater campaign resources, time, money than average students do? Would it not disproportionately skew the results? Why wouldn't they be anything other than neutral? Because I think from the perspective of surely they should be educating us about why staff feel the need to strike because if if you're not if you don't know why staff are wanting to strike you you seeing it from the perspective of my education is being disrupted again my lecturers are meaning that i can't get my education when actually like, if you look into the reasons why they're striking as uh, aiden said in and the, the gown article said it's completely valid the reasons why they're balloting for strike action at the minute and i think it, it would be fair for like a case to be made of this is why the staff feel they need to strike and, and we should be educating people on why these strikes are happening. But so why should we, that's the, it's the job of the UCU to educate people about why the staff want to strike. It's not the job of the students union. Yeah, Are you not making it an assumption straight off the bat that, that the issue should be supporting the UCU? And maybe it should. And also, on the, if you look onto the online petition, you can find all sorts of articles about, about why the UCU are striking. If students want to educate themselves, they can do so. Can they not, Michael? You're completely right, but I just feel that there's always been that solidarity in the staff and student unions because we are both members of the university. And I feel that this debate, from what I've seen online, particularly on things like QB Love, it's often polarized in a way that people appear to blame the lecturers for these issues, blaming the lecturers for the poor experiences in the past couple of years or for wanting to strike. And I feel that there is that polarity there. We're not two different sides of this. We're both two groups that are experiencing life at the university and we both want to get the best we can and it it's always been that we've worked together to get that best because that's how that's how the solidarity works Aiden, is that the case do you think that that staff interests and student interests are perfectly aligned such as what staff want is in the best of interest of students um i think you'd have to look at a case by case basis i think michael's right that it, you know if you have a lecturer who is giving the means by the university to be a quality lecturer, then obviously you are going to get a good quality of education. But my sort of question really to you, Michael, here would be, the strikes will mean that irrespective of any quality of education, students don't get that because there won't be any lectures, there won't be any tutorials, there won't be any of that. The other side of that is, and I believe, if I remember correctly, we saw this with the strikes in 2020 or 2019. We've been given the rough dates of the start of Christmas, I believe it is, till the January term. Inevitably, it's going to run over from that because the university or the, I think it's called the super 
Anium or whatever it is, they aren't going to budge on the first wave of strikes because they're going to appreciate that students are going to be incredibly frustrated by this. So my question would be, do you not think that now is not the time? Yes, I think we both agree that staff should be treated with respect and dignity. But in terms of strike action, do you think now okay. is still the time? Michael? If now isn't the time, when is the time? Like we see these people saying, oh, but they strike every single year. It's because of the fact that potentially these strikes aren't working. They're not getting the support they need. Yeah, but may, yeah. Knows, maybe you just said it, Michael. Maybe the strikes aren't working. Maybe the strikes will never work. Strikes have worked in the past for a lot of things. If you look at what's happened when people strike in the past, if you look at what happened with the Unite Hospitality and the QBSU uh, speakeasy workers, like strikes are a valid form of action. It is almost a last resort of action you take if your negotiations haven't worked. And surely if we were able to rally behind this and we were able to get the pension cuts turned back, then that would that would be the success we need. And that would mean that like surely if... if if now is not the time, it's going to happen next year, and it's the next lot of students who get affected. And, and why is it any point, more fair that they get Michael affected? Is, at what point, Michael, is the UCU forced to say we're not we're not going to be able to win? I mean, the, this four fights that that is underpinning the current round of, of balloting. I mean, that stretches back to 2018. Now, most of it came in 2019 into 2020. We're going to be in 2022 fairly soon. At what point do you say we cannot just continue to strike and strike and strike year on year on year? Or is it the case that you think indefinite strike action would be entirely justifiable? I think if they turn around and say, well, actually, we don't think we're going to win. We don't think we're going to get uh, proper rights in the workplace. or we don't think we're going to get proper pay for the work we do. I think that's a very sad reality. And then you'd be looking at how many people wouldn't go into the industry because they know that they'd be treated horribly. They know they wouldn't have a pension when they retire. I think that actually what we want to do is we want to support these strikes to victory so that they don't have to strike for these reasons again. Because if it is a case of it happens year on year on year on year, then clearly they're striking for a valid reason. They're not striking for fun. They don't say, you know what, I want to pay rise. Let's go on strike. A strike is the last resort. The, the ballot they're doing is action for a strike or action But I suppose from the perspective of a student, Michael, when you're only in university for three or four years, losing as students who are currently at Queen's a substantial amount of your education because of strike action is, is really rough. And it's really, um, it's, it's, it's really detrimental to your education. And you're only in university for three years. Um, why should students possibly say that they're going to support what would be something that's detrimental to their education? I completely understand. Like I've been, when my first year there were strikes, my second and third year was COVID and there's going to be strikes this year. So I'm going to be affected every single year. But there's two ways I look at this. One, like, yes, I could be selfish about myself and say, actually, I need to focus on my education now because I only have three years here. But I also recognize that these staff members are people too. And, 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 they deserve to to have their treatment and, and be able to work in an environment they're comfortable in. But also from the perspective of, you saw Joe Grady did a very, very good speech when she was questioned by, um, I think a minister recently regarding staff during the pandemic and, she, and talking about how many staff are reporting symptoms of depression and how difficult they're finding it. And I know personally, I work much better in a nice environment where I feel I can thrive, where I'm not under pressure, be it thinking about money or thinking about food or thinking about, all the stresses in my life I know that I work much better when I don't have to stress about all that so surely if my lecturers were in that same boat like we were discussing earlier if lecturers felt that they were more comfortable they could work better and they could better support their students if they had more time 
to give to students education and that would be better for students. So yes. I don't do you think the SU agrees with you, Michael? Why do you think the SU has one gone for a referendum and two decided to be neutral in that referendum? Clearly they fundamentally disagree with you. Oh, there's, there's a bush you just throw me under there, Thomas. <laughs> um, I think, yes, they're completely valid that students are being affected by this, but I feel they're taking it from the perspective of, well, we need to put students first, which is completely valid, but it's just going to, it's going to exacerbate this issue. And I, I think that they disagree with the strike action because they've experienced it every single year. And they may be like, maybe like you're saying, they don't think it works. They don't think it's the right way about it. Maybe, maybe they're not radical enough. Is it, um, is it cowardly, Michael? The, 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 you are throwing me under a bus here. I would say yes. Why? Um, because, because I think by not taking a line, what they're doing is no matter what the student body says, they're like, oh yeah, look, we agree. And it means that no one can slate them for it. So say for well, example- What's wrong with that? Came, What's wrong with going to students and saying what they think? But if they came out in support because they morally agreed with it and the student body slated them for it on social media, they wouldn't like that. They wouldn't, they wouldn't want to see that criticism. But if they came out against it and the student body turned around and were like, actually, wait a minute, why are you not supporting our lecturers? They don't, I, don't, I feel they don't want to take a side for fear that there'll actually be a reaction against it. So by remaining neutral and saying, well, actually, we're going to, we're going to just not tow any line whatsoever, I feel they're trying to avoid any kind of kickback that would otherwise happen. Aiden? No, I absolutely agree. It's complete cowardice. It's playing safe politics where they don't take any of the blame. Um, it, you know, it was going to happen with the student council vote. They could say, well, whilst we privately might have supported uh, the strikes, let's say the SC voted against them, they'd say, well, it was the SC that voted against them, so we wash our hands of the blame there. Now they're putting that, uh, they're washing their hands and putting the blame on students if this referendum takes place, which I very much hope it does. Um, it is just a case of they don't want to be criticised for doing something that would be unpopular. And for them um, and their ideological leanings and their, you know, other affiliations. What do you mean by that? Side of this what do you mean by ideological leanings and affiliation? I, from my uh, looking into the manifestos and political positions taken by the SU, I, I believe they are a centre-left SU, perhaps, maybe a moderate left. The strike action is, is always a popular uh, position to take with uh, people on the left, because, of course, you know, they want to be uh, in solidarity with workers. And that is something that I can actually get behind, just not right now. Um, so I think if the SU were to uh, say, actually, no, we're not going to do any of this and we support the strikes, they'd be uh, pleasing their own ideological wants, but they'd be going against the popular opinion of students who it is yeah. they're there to represent. Whereas so they put it to students. So they agree so with they you, and they put, put it to students. students. So what's no, wrong with that? The thing is, what's no, wrong with that? You've just outlined a precise argument as to why. Well. I did call for it as well. Why they should put, put it to a referendum, and, and they've I done do so. Like so why are you moaning about it? Students are being brought in, but what I don't like is the reason why students are being brought in. Students should have been brought in from the start if this is the way they're going to go for it. But they're doing it now, quite late onto it. Just so that they can wash their hands of any guilt and blame. Are you sure, Aidan, you're not just wanting to find a, an axe to grind? You wanted <laughs> the students to put it to, they asked you to put it to a referendum. They've put it to a referendum. And now you're saying they're somehow cowardly for doing so. No, because I just, I thought they've cowardly from, the, my belief that they're cowardice goes well before any mention of a referendum. 
They don't want to take a position on this, so they're looking for someone else to blame for doing it. Now, yes, it's great that students are being brought into the process. I wrote about this in the article that I put up uh, on Thursday for the GAO, but it's not good that the reason students are being brought into this isn't because the gown was campaigning for them to be brought into it. They're being brought into it so that they don't have the SU don't have to take any blame. But surely it doesn't. It. It, it, surely it doesn't matter why the SU have done it. All you really care about is the fact that students at large should have a vote on it, and the SU's done exactly that. So why? Well, that me? is that is the bigger. I, I mean, I rather jokingly referred to it as a victory for students in the article on Thursday. You know, it is that is the main thing that we should focus on is that students are being brought in. But that doesn't mean we should ignore why. Or should we say we shouldn't ignore why? Maybe I it's the case. Maybe it's the case that both of you just are annoyed that that you didn't get your own way, and and so you've decided to take it out on the SU. Uh, and, and and Michael, you, maybe you're just annoyed that students are likely not to back your opinion. Is it not the case you're broadly in favour of having strike action? You know that most students probably aren't in favour of backing strike action. So the SU putting it to students, you think is bad because they won't agree with you. You'd much prefer to dictate the policy to students, would you, Michael, rather than allow them to have a vote on it? Uh, as much as I, I don't think I'd make a great uh, dictator of the students' union. Uh, as, as I was talking to a friend who said to me there, um, you can't get annoyed at someone, i.e. the student body, if, if they don't know the ins and outs and the depths of the situation. Like you can't get annoyed at them for any position they may take because the, students haven't all had the chance to speak with UCU. They haven't had a chance to speak to some of the lecturers. They didn't have lecturers crying on them to the phone last year saying, can you convince your class to set a profile picture so I can see a pair of eyes when I'm lecturing? Like if they haven't had the chance to have those in-depth experiences and those conversations and get to understand that a strike is the last resort and why we feel the need to strike, then we can't be annoyed at them for the position they take. But the students' union who do or are meant to regularly meet with UCU, or I would hope they meet regularly with UCU and do understand those staff issues and are meant to be these, uh, as they said, radical activists who are always fighting for workers' rights and fighting for students, then surely they should be able to understand and take a side because they can see the sides of these arguments so clearly. Who are you, Michael, to say that students don't know enough or haven't had enough experience or enough education about the UCU and the reasons for the strike action to say that they shouldn't be allowed to vote on it? I mean, surely you're just falling into exactly what I said, which is that you'd much rather just tell students what way you believe is in their interests. And maybe it's the case that they understand all the things you've said. Maybe that they have heard lecturers really uh, crying uh, th their eyes out or, or opening up their hearts as to how difficult the last year has been. And they've said to themselves, I really feel sorry for them, but students' interests and staff interests here aren't aligned. Therefore, I'm going to vote the other way. Who are you to tell them to, uh, to, 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 bike to back strike action when maybe they don't want to? I mean, you're completely right. I am no one. I'm just a student. I'm, I'm not a member of the SU. Uh, I, I'm not paid to toe these lines. I haven't been voted into any role. But I do feel that one of the most important jobs of the Students' Union, surely, in my mind, would be to educate people on these issues, to put all these resources up and, and do bridge that gap. Because, yes, like I said earlier, like you may say the student staff interests don't align, but when it comes down to it, no student wants to see a a staff member or a fellow human struggling in such a way. So like, yes, by all means, I think students should be involved in the democratic process the entire way through. But I feel that the way it's being approached, I just I completely disagree with.
Okay. Um, what way do you think students will vote, Michael? I think it's completely far too early for me to say, and to try and hedge any get bet, uh, bets would be to pull from a, a sample size far too small. I'd be thinking about my friends or those I've seen on social media. So I, I don't think that I could guess either way at all. Okay, Aidan, what way do you think students will vote? I think it's going to be students saying that they should not support the strike action. Okay, well, you may thank the SU then, Aidan. Will you have to thank the SU? <laughs> that they put the policy to a referendum in the first place. Okay, Aidan, Michael, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for coming on and, uh, and having a bit of a chat about that. Uh, Aidan Lamas, Aidan Lamas there, editor of The Gown, and Michael Apple, a final year mechanical engineering student. Thank you both. Okay, let's move on. Drink spiking has become a major issue here in Northern Ireland and across the UK this month. In just a second, I'll be talking to Kelsey, who's from Belfast, and who was spiked this week in a city centre nightclub. First, though, to chat more about this story is Chelsea Abbott, Deputy Health and Lifestyle Editor for The Scoop. Chelsea, thank you so much for being with me. What's the scale of this problem? Why are we talking about it now? Well, in terms of the scale of the problem, I've got some statistics to show at you. Um, in the UK-wide, the National Police Chiefs Council said that almost 200 drink spiking incidents had been reported in the UK over the past two months. Looking into Northern Ireland, the police said that there have been 34 reports of drink spiking, 17 that are still being investigated, and these are all since January 2021. Um, in terms of progress with these cases, only one arrest has been made and two people have been reported to prosecutors. So they're waiting to go through the system and it's taken a really long time, which is part of the scale of the problem. You know, there's a lot of people, that, a lot of reports, there's a lot of cases waiting to go through the system. But what makes this even more scarier right now is the injection spiking that's been happening a lot more recently. And especially as clubs open, this is getting more frightening. Mm -hmm. And of course, the other thing to bear in mind, Chelsea, is that so many people don't report this to the police. Um, I mean, just in casual conversation, the number of people I would speak to talking about this issue would say that very few people that they know would report this issue to the police. So already, I suppose you're dealing with statistics that are slightly diluted from reality. What's been what's been the government response so far, Chelsea, or, or the response from the authorities? Um, has there been has there been much of a response, or has it been fairly muted? Well, just to quickly go back, yeah, a lot of people haven't reported it. It's quite a scary thing, and in terms of government response, there's not much there, to be honest. Um, the UK, there's a UK government petition to hopefully bring free spiking test kits to all bars, and it has almost 15,000 signatures, but it's not enough to really get noticed at the moment. Um, in terms of what we've really heard from government and authorities, the UK Home Secretary did ask for an urgent update from the police on investigations. However, nothing really came of that, and the National Police Chief, Chiefs Council, um, their temporary head, Sarah Cruz, said that it's just too difficult to make an assessment right now. That's not going to be much comfort, I suppose, to people uh, who've been spiked over the last couple of weeks. What about what about bars and students from the you know sort of the other end, the non-authority end? What are students doing about this, and what are bars doing about this to try to to try to crack down on the amount of drink spiking happening in their premises? 
Well, in terms of bars, looking at a Northern Ireland perspective, bars and clubs are slowly beginning to open. Not much is really being done, but I think there's always that you can talk to a staff member that keeps people at comfort. In terms of students, over 50 universities have joined an online campaign calling for boycotts of nightclubs. That happened on the 27th. It was called the Girls' Night In. And people in Belfast and students at QUB also joined in on that. They did two film nights through like online video platforms and shared a load of advice to protect women from drink spiking. And one of those that was included with Bethany Moore, the QUB welfare officer, and it was shared across the student union. And they all gave advice for, for students two students ahead of clubs reopening in Northern Ireland. And what is that advice? I suppose if you're if you're out and about and you think you might have been spiked, one, how do you maybe know if you're looking down at a drink, whether something's not quite right? And two, what do you do if you realise that you have been spiked or think that a friend of yours has? Well, I um, had a look at the advice from Belfast Girl Gang as well as the Q, um, QBSU. And together, in terms of drinks, they said to look for excessive bubbles or a foggy appearance, changing colour. Anything that's changing in your drink should be a cause for concern. Alongside looking into other people, they can face things like memory loss, difficulty concentrating, loss of consciousness. And one of the main side effects that I think we all know is a sudden, sudden wooziness or drunkness. Um, and what this information also added on, which I think is really interesting, is how to react. The best, best place is to take your friend to a quiet, safe space and bring along a member of staff or a member of medical staff. Um, urgent help is always vital by calling 999. Um, but it also helps to seek medical advice so that you can have a drugs test done. So that in 24 hours, in between 24 hours of being spiked, they know that you have been spiked and there's proof that it's in your system. Right, okay. Well, that's what people should do, I suppose, uh, if they suspect anything uh, has been put in their drinks. Anything else, Chelsea, before we finish up? Well, there's a lot of advice of who you should contact in a few days after. It can be quite intimidating. Um, for things like contacting the venue or contacting the police. So QUB have their wellbeing services set up as well as a report and support portal where students can go and they can tell people about possible spiking cases and take more action on what would happen next. The last bit of information that I wanted to end on was some statistics that I found from a survey that the tab did, which was pretty shocking. 2,700 people believed that they have been spiked since the start of the 2021 academic year. And 12,000 people believe that a friend or someone they know has been spiked since the start of uni term. These are really scary statistics. So taking the advice and taking the help from QUB, I think will be really helpful. Chelsea, thank you so much for that. Chelsea Abbott there, the Deputy Health and Lifestyle Editor for The Scoop. Well, joining me now is Kelsey Vinkatuk, who's 25 and from St. Fields. Uh, Kelsey, thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, no problem. T tell me what happened to you this week. <clears throat> so um, I went to Limelight on a girls' night out and um, 
I think I can remember like the first R at a push um and we sort of had people come in there was there was sort of tables all around us but everyone was kind of coming and going and talking and whatnot um and from like maybe an hour or in a bit in I was just completely black out and by that point like I hadn't drank enough to even be anywhere near that point um and like I just can't remember the whole night woke up in a random gaff and yeah it's just like really scary <laughs> oh you don't even you didn't even know the house where you'd woken up no wow okay yeah were you with friends or were you by yourself when you woke up I was with friends so I was with two friends at the start of the night and then I don't I couldn't tell you what happened <laughs> literally yeah. but when you woke yeah. up the next morning were you with people you knew or were you, were you no. by yourself completely by yourself I was by myself in the living wow. room <laughs> that's how, well yeah. I was gonna say that's terrifying tell me how you felt I just woke up and I was like where am I I literally immediately just rung a taxi and like went home and I was like what and then I asked my friend like you know did did I go like what happened like did I go like who was I with and she was like I don't know and I was like what what do you mean you don't know it's like oh my goodness so yeah it was just a bit mad was it scary did you feel scared yeah 100 percent um and what, what's the know. first thing that goes through your mind when you wake up because you you know you know you haven't drunk enough to get to that point so yeah so something's gone on you know yeah at first off I was like what happened like whose house am I in and then I got home and I was just like okay like I started talking to people and they were like you like where was there people around your table and stuff like you were you don't remember anything and my mom was just like how did you feel in the morning like I didn't feel right until like two o'clock the next day and even at that I was just like that doesn't happen like it shouldn't happen and I didn't feel like the usual hungover feeling you have like it wasn't that it was something different um so then I just sort of realized I was like oh no like this is not this has not happened mm-hmm. <laughs> um and then yeah I just have to go through what could have happened that night and sort of do everything to and and it. and did you what sort of how did you get from the points of um how did you get from the point of waking up and, and going home and talking to people to concluding that you know so I said ran... you must have been spiked or, or what, how did you get yeah. to that conclusion well, that's that's what my friend said to me like I said to her I was just like I don't like I don't remember anything and she was just like there was a lot of people around our table like you know you could have you know you were most likely spiked if you can't remember anything and she picked me up the next day after I got a taxi home and she was just like no you, you were spiked like that there's no way even in my drunk state of mind like none of that would have happened do you know what I mean yeah. and, and and do you know kind of how you were spiked did you check yourself for needle marks or was it something I checked like myself for or... needle marks so I it must have been the drink yeah because like I said there was a lot of people around the table and stuff so um I'm assuming it was that um because from when I can remember blacking out I wasn't I was like two two free drinks in do you know what I mean like 
and I hadn't prayed or anything and I was just like I can go 10 drinks in and be completely fine so it was really really weird um but yeah it was just my friend was just like no like you you were spiked and like it's funny I go out and I don't think about it because you don't think it'll happen to you and then it does happen to you and then you're like oh do you know do you know what I find interesting Kelsey I, I'm because we're talking about this and you're laughing kind of awkwardly and I wonder is that <laughs> yeah. I, I wonder is that I wonder what that says it does that tell us that this is something that's becomes so normalized or is it something you feel really awkward about what's the kind of I mean because like you say it's one of these things that I'm sure girls think about all the time and think it'll never actually be me yeah I mean I've heard stories and like it's happened you know my friend that went out with me it's happened to her before and um it's happened to my mom and stuff uh and you just sort of hear about these things and I guess it is just like it's like oh guess it you know finally happened to me yeah Uh, but isn't that but that's that's what I'm asking is that it's become so so normalized that it is something where it happens to all girls at some stage and you have to laugh about it because if you don't you just yeah you just go and see him like if you don't but what does that what does that say about you know culture society what does that say to you it's crazy because like if I just feel like if it was so common like the other way around like there would be a lot more uproar about it um do you mean if if guys were getting spiked yeah like yeah but like that just doesn't happen well no that's a lie it does happen to guys but I mean can't imagine it happens so often you know there's not a lot of times I've heard like my guy mates say oh I've been spiked but I can tell you every single one of my friends have been spiked Mm -hmm. so I don't know it's just it's just mad and I don't think society or you know people really care enough because for us women like it's just normal (laughs) do you think that well uh, before we get on to I thought the authorities and what society could do about it what yeah I mean when you when you think what do you think are people's motivations behind it uh, what I mean by that is you were spiked what what do you think in your head how do you rationalize what somebody intended to do by um, doing that for me uh I guess it might have been uh I don't I uh, I don't know because I don't know what happened but you can only just sort of guess why people would spike girls to easily persuade them to do whatever they want or just to watch them get way 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 too drunk and you know having to go out of the club falling over or whatever it's hard to put yourself in a person person's mind that would do that you know but there definitely is very clear motives of like getting with girls and you know just watching people get way too drunk and drugged and stuff and well, call a spade a spade, Kelsey. You know, it would yeah. be rape, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, do you think that? Do you think before we get onto clubs and bars, do you think that the authorities, the PSNI, the government, society in general, do you think take take this issue seriously enough? No. No. Um, I mean, you're hearing, for example, over in Edinburgh, I think it's really, really bad with the whole needle situation. I know some clubs are great and. They've been sort of up in their security and stuff, but realistically, like this should be bigger news than what it is. Like needles, you know, dropping drugs into a drink. I know it sounds bad, but it's the the lesser of the two because these could be dirty needles that they've put into five other women in the same club. 
Do you know what I mean? So you don't know what's been transmitted through those needles. It's really dangerous, not just with the drugs, but like anything that the needles are carrying. It's so, so dangerous and could, you know, put people in hospital. What do you think? What do you, what would you like to see the government or bars and clubs do to try to protect you? You know, when you walk in or when you're getting your drink or you're going about your Well, there definitely needs to be like heavier, like searches going in. I mean, you know, the, the security just check your bag to make sure you're not sneaking alcohol in, do you know what I mean? But there definitely needs to be more vigorous searches, especially if they're going to make women feel more safe, you know, going out. Because me, myself, I will not be going out again. Like, unless I'm like, I, I don't need, I don't, I, unless something changes, to be honest with you, some kind of heavy security measure or I haven't really thought about what, but definitely body searches, especially if this needle thing gets any worse. So you, you're you too afraid to go out now? Yeah, I was supposed to go out on Sunday and I said to my mates, I was like, I'm not. <laughs> like, I'm, I, would, I would probably have a panic attack if I went into a club. And especially because everything's opening up again and you can dance and everyone can float about anywhere. Like, ah, uh, no, not happening. <laughs> have a glass of wine at home (laughs) what would your message be to the government i suppose and to you know people in positions of power as somebody who's who's been on the receiving end of what is surging in northern ireland and across the uk what what would your message to them be take it seriously i just don't think the government take things like this seriously and just hope it blows over like it already happens and like you know, drugs being dropped in drinks. And I mean, they don't really take that seriously. So it's just the needle thing's a little bit, it's definitely escalated and they need to like really listen and listen to the stories of people it's happened to and take, take, just do something, you know, it's, it's crazy. So it is. Kelsey, thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. Okay, let's move on. Today marks the first day of COP26, the International Climate Summit in Glasgow. Now, you would have had to have been hiding under a rock to have missed all the hype about COP26, but you could be forgiven for being a little confused as to what it actually is. Well, with me now to set that straight is Scoop reporter AJ Camacho, who is going to be over in Glasgow and reporting for us from there in just over a week's time. AJ, thank you so much for being with us. Um, What is COP26, what does, it, what does it even stand for? What are the real basics? What is COP26? Uh, well, thanks for having me, Thomas. COP26 is essentially the 26th Conference of the Parties, COP, COP. Uh, conference of what parties? Well, the parties that have signed on to what is called the United Nations Framework for the Convention on Climate Change. This was an agreement set up in 1992 uh, in Rio de Janeiro. It was the first major effort by the international community to sort of tackle climate change. And essentially all that set forward was that every year, the members of this, which included essentially every UN member state would meet and they would discuss prospective action. 26. There have been 26 of those since it began. This conference was actually supposed to happen last year, but due to the pandemic, it was postponed. Um, There have been sort of three notable COPs previously. There was the first COP that was in Rio de Janeiro, which sort of set up the whole thing. Uh, There was a later one in the later 90s, uh, which created the Kyoto Protocol. 
And then there was later one in the early 2000s that in Copenhagen that was also quite significant. And lastly, there was the Paris Agreement in 2015. COP26 is particularly significant because it is the official follow-up to the Paris Conference where parties are supposed to revisit their pledges and commitments that they made in 2015 in Paris. And remind us, what 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 was the Paris Agreement all about? Because that was landmark at the time. What remind us for for those of us for whom there are so many you know different treaties and, and climate obligations and commitments going around. What was so significant about the Paris Agreement, and why does it need to be returned to uh, in Glasgow? The Paris Agreements were, to be sure, incredibly significant, at least at the time they were thought to be. Uh, the previous best success was seen in Kyoto, uh, but the problem with the Kyoto Protocol ended up being big nations like the United States, uh, they got a bit upset. George W. Bush uh, essentially refused to go along with it in the end because part of the agreement was that in, uh, industrializing nations, developing nations like China and India wouldn't have to worry about cutting back their carbon emissions. So the United States viewed that as sort of passing the buck along to them and refused to go along. Paris was viewed at the time as a great success because almost every country in the world agreed to this. The process was very tailored as well to each individual country, rather than these broad statements like every wealthy nation will cut emissions by this much, whereas the poorer ones don't have to worry about it. It was creating a standard for every single nation. Diplomats and climate scientists worked very closely together. And by the end, every country had a goal. All UN member states except for one signed it. Only five did not end up ratifying it. So in that respect, it was very significant. The unfortunate thing about Paris since then has been that it's generally agreed to not be working in practical terms. There was no enforcement mechanism. It was just hoping that states would stick to their agreements. Um, and in practice, what we've seen is that only one of the signing countries, the Gambia, has stayed on track with that 1.5, that, that goal of the Paris Agreement to limit global warming to no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial. Now that's so significant because how many countries signed it off the top of your head? Rough ballpark? Uh, it was about 100, uh, it was a little over 190. Um, and only one has stuck to the commitment so far. So that's, that one line tells us why Glasgow is so important. So in Glasgow, what will actually be happening? I mean, what will the politicians be doing? What will ordinary people be doing? Uh, it's, it's happening over is it two weeks or so. You know, what's actually going to be taking place day to day in Glasgow? Yeah, so the official ceremonial beginnings are Halloween Day. Um, then on November 1st and 2nd, there's the World Leader Summit. Um, the World Leader Summit is going to see, well, many world leaders. Uh, there are some notable people who will not be president, namely President Xi Jinping from China and Vladimir Putin from Russia, two of the world's largest emitters of greenhouse gas emissions will not be there in person. There will be, however, members like President Biden, uh, President Mahindra Modi, uh, Queen Elizabeth was supposed to be there. She recently was not announced that she would not be attending for medical reasons. Prime Minister Boris Johnson will be there as well. Um, so that will be happening on the 1st and 2nd of November. That is largely just a ceremonial fanfare thing. The nuts and bolts of the agreements, the actual negotiations are gonna be hammered out with. By, by diplomats of these individual member states with the consultation of many climate scientists and experts in a very similar manner, at least in theory, to what we saw in Paris. Um, but what else is going to be happening? Well, the conference is divided in short into two zones. There is the green zone and the blue, the blue zone. The green zone encompasses sort of a bigger public section. Uh, NGOs are going to be hosting a variety of like events and sort of side exhibitions for the public. Uh, there are going to be protests 
on November 6th, which is a Saturday, which has been declared as this sort of a day for climate action. And it's expected by some uh, by some organizations that as much as 100,000 people will show up to that. Wow. Uh, and then we get to sort of the, the blue zone, which is where I'm going to be spending some of my time uh, when I'm in Glasgow on the last four days. And that's where we're going to see a lot of these negotiations, where we're going to see press conferences with diplomats. And each day is going to cover one or two or three sort of specialized issues that could range from what cities can do to combat climate change, what we can arrange in negotiations for transport, how we can focus it in the agriculture sector, so forth and so forth. And do you think at this stage, so it's the, the by the time people are listening to this, COP26 will have opened. Um, do you think at this stage, is it looking auspicious? You mentioned there that President Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin wouldn't be there. Now, of course, you've also said that, you know, the world leaders being there is a bit of a fanfare and it's the diplomats who actually thrash these things out. Do you think at this stage, it looks like COP26 could be a success? Are there good signs at this stage or is it looking a little bit dicey? It's to say it's looking dicey would be appropriate to say it's going to be a failure or a success. It, it truly is too soon to say. Um, there, the expert consensus tends to look pessimistically, pessimistically on it. Uh, I was just, in fact, on an interview earlier today with Professor John Barry. He's a politics and international relations professor here at Queen's University. Uh, his attitude appeared to be generally pessimistic that this conference would do much. Um, he said that he was expecting a lot of rhetoric. Indeed, that seems to be the general expert consensus when asked, is this going to actually limit global warming to below 1.5 degrees Celsius, uh, to keeping it within 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Most are saying no. There are some reasons to be somewhat hopeful though. Uh, even though President Xi Jinping will not be attending, he has reiterated that his country is committed to a net zero carbon emission goal by 2060. He's maintained that he's committed to that 1.5 limit. So even though he won't be attending in person, there is a fair amount of hope there. Also that nations like uh, India, Prime Minister Nandra Modi will be um, attending is very important since those are uh, very much poor, since a lot of these poor countries that are currently developing, a lot of the pressure is going to be on them as it's easier for rich countries to make the transition to green technology. Uh, and that last bit is going to be something that proves to be important here is the progress at which green energy is developing. Um, Indeed, there was a paper out of Oxford University uh, just in September, just last month, that estimated that within 25 years, if green technology was allowed to develop at the rate that it currently is, we would likely have a net zero carbon energy uh, grid. Now, that's probably not quick enough to meet the 1.5 limit, but it is close. So for Glasgow to be a success, it might only need to make minor changes, like increasing countries' commitments to uh, subsidies for green energy, or increasing the amount of money that rich countries are going to donate to poorer countries to help them make the transitions to green energy, which still is more expensive than fossil mm -hmm. fuels, even though it looks like it's becoming cheaper and cheaper very quickly. But it is fair to say, AJ, I suppose that, you know, these two weeks matter. It's not one of these things where the conference is a bit of a rubber stamping about conversations that have really all happened and agreed. There will be real substantive negotiations taking place over the next couple of weeks in Glasgow and they matter. No, absolutely. That is completely fair. Uh, John Kerry, the former U.S. Secretary of State and the current climate czar, uh, noted that this was our last best hope 
Um, indeed, that seems to be a general sentiment in regards to climate change. Uh, a now famous 2018 report from the United Nations estimated that to keep within that 1.5 degree goal, we have to cut carbon emissions to roughly 50% of what they were in 2010, and we need to do that by 2030. Now, because countries can't just magically shift their energy grids overnight, because it's going to take about eight years if we're lucky for most countries, many people have said, and quite reasonably, that this is likely the most consequential conference that the world will ever know. Now, depends on how you measure that, obviously, but success here could mean saving entire species, could mean save, saving entire countries. But failure here, in all likelihood, is going to be failure for that 1.5 degree limit. Even a conference that happens next year, COP27, likely won't have the same amount of gravitas, in part because it's not revisiting the Paris conference, and in part because that extra year is a lot of lost time when our deadline is 2030. Well, AJ, it looks like it's going to be one of the most consequential summits in our lifetime, and you are going to be there for the scoop. Um, you can follow much more of it on AJ's journey uh, on the Eco Scoop, which comes out on Thursdays. We'll be talking to him as well when you're over there. AJ, what date are you going over? I'm arriving on Tuesday the, Tuesday the 9th, which is right around when uh, I only just got the email actually to, earlier today uh, from the United Nations as regards to what the schedule is. I'm arriving on Tuesday the 9th, which is when they begin the high level segment of negotiations. And I'm leaving Saturday the 13th, which is the day after the negotiations close. Catching all the action. AJ Camacho, thank you so much for talking to us. Okay, and finally on tonight's show, last week Doug Beattie, the leader of the Ulster Unionist Party, was here at Queen's for a Q&A event hosted in conjunction with the QUB Literific. We'll be releasing a full podcast of that event later in the week, a conversation that ranged from Beattie's life in the military, his leadership of the UUP, what he says is progressive unionism, integrated education of United Ireland, whether he would take the role of Deputy First Minister, and lots, lots more. For now, have a listen to just a few moments from that event. Because you went to quite a few schools. You were born in barracks. What does that, what does that actually mean in practice? Well, they say born in barracks. What they're really saying is I, I was born to a military family. So, yeah. so we were travelling around the place. So I was born in, in Tidworth in Hampshire. So I wasn't born in Northern Ireland. So that's where I was born because my father was in the Ulster Rifles and, and we travelled around a bit. And, and when I was born after that, we, we travelled around a bit. So he was a, he was a soldier and we sort of moved uh, every two years or every year, and, and I went to a, to a, you know, when I got to the age, I went to a new school uh, every two years or, or, or every year, never really put down any, any roots, and that sort of took us to Germany or took us to Gibraltar or, or throughout the whole of, of uh, um, the United Kingdom, and, and I think we finished off in, uh, in Inverness. Um, when I was 10 and from Inverness that we, we came back to. That's lots of know. different schools, so it's quite disrupted. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, and, and, and of course, um, and, and I don't mind saying this, and I don't say this, you know, with any sense of pride. Um, that disruption in my early school years, to the age of ten, sort of carried on. It, you know, it, it was a, it was just a disruptive childhood as far as education is concerned, and that led me to leaving school at the age of sixteen with no educational qualifications, so no GCSEs, no O levels, no A levels, never went to university, uh, no educational qualifications, and, and I still have no educational. Uh, qualifications. It's, it's quite embarrassing, you know, when you're when you're looking at applying for jobs and they get to the page that says, you know, log down all of your your qualifications. And I literally had to leave the page the page blank. Um, so I don't say that with pride. You know, I, I really admire people who can can really go the mile and, and get themselves properly educated, as you are here. 
but it just wasn't for me. Uh, I was disenfranchised from school at the age of 16, uh, and I made my, I made my way in a, in, a, in a different manner. And you settled in Portadown when you were 10. Yes. Um, and at that stage, it didn't take long, I suppose, for the, the troubles to have a fairly direct impact on your life. It was your uncle. Yeah, well, well, the interesting thing is, uh, and, I, and I say this again, and, and because it, it shapes you as a person and, and people get to understand why you have a view that you, you have. So I didn't know what a Catholic was till I was 10 years of age because my father wouldn't talk about religion in any shape or form. You know, I didn't know what religion I was. I didn't care. I still don't. Um, uh, but, but so it was never a real part of, of, of my life until, until I got home to Northern Ireland. Um, when I was 10 years of age, and we moved into a into a, a what would be classed as a loyalist estate, I suppose now, um, in Portadown, uh, Eggerstown, um, uh, and that's where we grew up. Six of us, um, three boys and three girls. My mum and a dad had a dog called um, Johnny, a beagle dog, fat beagle dog called Johnny, uh, and we lived in a three-bedroom terraced house. Um, but the first year we were back there, my uncle Samuel uh, was murdered by by terrorists, and I still remember when they they came to the door, uh, and my mother answered the door, and, and my my uncle saying to her that her younger brother had been had been killed, um, and I remember her falling to her knees screaming when she got the news of the death of her. Because of her younger brother. there are some people for in Northern Ireland, a prototypical example that would be the beginning of a life involved in paramilitaries and and, and this you know the circle of pain that comes from that. Why was that not the case for you? Well, well that's where that's where you rely on on your on your family values. Now, if I'm saying to you that that my father, it wasn't against religion. He just didn't like religion defining you as a as a person. So he 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 would never allow religion to to really shape us as as a, as a family in any shape or form. So if you go back to 1975 and all of the troubles in 1975, much of them uh, were all based around that religious divide. Um, and therefore, when people picked up the gun and they went one particular direction, they were normally going that direction because of their religion. Um, but we never had that. So uh, the, just the values that our father instilled in us. And I'd say this, and it's interesting about my, the, that my father is he, he, a typical man of, 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 this, of his era. You know, he, he never hugged me, never said he loved me, you know, never said he was proud of me. He was just that type of man, the, 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 the father figure of, a, of your home. But he wouldn't let religion define us. So his values actually kept us away from that, that trap that many people fell into. So... You know, that doesn't mean I moved away from a life of violence because clearly I stayed in a life of violence, but a different type of violence, I suppose. But when some people went right and got into paramilitarism or terrorism, you know, I, I went left and, and joined the military. What kind of a and then that relationship with your father has made all the more difficult at the age of 13. Yeah. When your mother passed away. Yes, it is. You, you know, my mother, my mother died of, of, of cancer. Um, it, was, it was a pretty awful um, time when she died of cancer. It was two years of suffering cancer. And, and if you watch somebody suffering with cancer, you know, it, it's, it's a pretty brutal disease. Um, uh, so, and we knew she was going, she was going to die. But uh, she died and, and, and it affected my father an awful lot. Uh, and, and if you think about all of those kids I said lived in the house, they'd all left and grown up and done other jobs or got married and were doing other things. So I was kind of left there on my own with my father. And my father turned to, to alcohol and his grief, I've got to say, you know, I don't hold it against him. But, but it just made life as a, as a young man really difficult because your father had turned to to alcohol because of his grief you were the only person in the house so you were getting up in the morning you were making your father breakfast you were walking to school you know and my walk to school was about four miles and then I was doing school and I was walking back another four miles and getting into the house and then having to light the fire having to 
um, uh, get dinner ready for my father coming back from work. And then in the evening time, when his grief was at his worst, when he was on his own, he would turn to the drink and he'd put on the music that he used to listen to with my mother. Then he would wake me up at two o'clock in the morning to come and sit with him mm. to listen to that music. Then you'd listen to that music at two o'clock in the morning with your grieving father. Uh, and then at six o'clock, you're up again to start the whole process. So that became part of my life for, for about 18, 18 months. Did he ever tell you he was proud of you? Um, a, a couple of, well, um, I always knew he was. I always knew he loved me, but he never said it. Um, but when it got near the end of his life, he, he got throat cancer. So he, he got throat cancer, uh, and uh, I didn't know this until quite late on. Um, uh, and he, he ended up, he couldn't talk, and then he had his voice box taken out. And he used to take everything down in a little black notebook. He used to write everything down in this, and he used to pass it on to us. And, and just when he was in the hospital, it was the last couple of days, he, he got his notebook out. And he just literally wrote in it, wrote in the notebook, and I still got it. I'm really proud of you. I love you. And he handed that to me, and I think that was, that was about two days before he died. What does that mean to you? Oh, I, I, mean, it's, it, I mean, it makes me emotional just even talking about it now. If, you know, people think you're a politician, and you don't have these emotions, you don't have these frailties, or you don't have these weaknesses. Well, you absolutely do, and I have those frailties the same as everybody else. So it's quite emotional to think of my father at that stage, mm. that when he knew life was ending, that he felt he had to say that and write that. And I still have that notebook with those words in it, and it means an awful lot to me. And you mentioned you joined the Army at 16. Yeah. Um, is that too young? Would you, would you recommend that to other people? No, I wouldn't. I, I, I'm, I'm one of these people who joined the military at the age of 16 because I thought that was my outlet. I came from a military family. I thought that was the easy option to do. And I also wanted to make my father proud as well. So I was always playing to my father. But 16 is not a good age to join the military. You know, I would, I, I, you know, there's many people out there who say, well, I joined at 16. That was the making of me. Mm. But, but I know many 16-year-olds who joined and failed within the first year, and it wasn't the making of them. So I think you know, it makes no harm whatsoever just to get people to wait till they're 18 uh, and let them, let them live a little bit, let them grow up, uh, and then let them join the military if they so wish. And it allows people to make better informed decisions. Yeah, but in a real-life election, Doug, I mean, it's not the case. You cannot win seats in every constituency. Why? You cannot win every seat. Why? Okay, you will not win every seat. Why? You will not win every seat. Why? And I, you, you tell will me why. Not, because, will you vote for the UP next election? No, you won't. No, so you're not going to win every seat. But he'll, right? tra he'll transfer. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so, so... My, yeah, see, see, convert. He's lying to you. He's lying to you. He's my, not. My, my point is, we all know that there are seats where the DUP might win a seat and the UP won't win a seat. Mm -hmm. So, uh, if you stood down in that seat, um, uh, 50%, 25% of your voters might vote DUP. The other 75% might not, but the net result might be a unionist representative where otherwise there wouldn't have been one. Why isn't that a good thing if, so, if you're so, saying so that your you're, number one thing so is your, unionism? Your, 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 argument, your argument is flawed. If you take, if you take a constituent and you say, well, if, if we don't stand an also unionist party candidate so the DUP will get all the votes, then maybe 25% will vote for them, but the other 75 won't vote for them, or the non-voters won't vote for them. See, come the next time when I try to stand an also unionist party, I've lost those votes. They're not coming back to me because they say I've abandoned you. So they won't come back. It doesn't work that way. The other point is this, and when you hear this, this will come out in the media in, in due course. Trust me, I know exactly where we'll go because people will look to see how many candidates you're running. And when you're saying, as I am, that I want to be the first minister, they look and say, but you're only running 22 candidates. You can't be the first minister. You have to run more candidates. How many candidates are you going to run? I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, have to, you will have to run more than, what, you have to run 28-ish. Are you running more than 25? I'm not telling you. Oh, go on. You're no, running 26, no, no. aren't you? I can like you, but I don't have to tell you everything. Right, um, okay. 
You know, but you see the point I'm making. So, so I, I, I fundamentally disagree. I understand the point you're making. It's not a, it's not a bad point you're making, but, but I don't agree with it. I think quite the opposite. I think the broader we, we, we cast our net, the more people we get. And if we get a vision, that two-thirds of non-voters, unionist non-voters, will vote. There's been a lot of chat in recent weeks about whether you would serve as a deputy first minister to a Sinn Féin first minister, and you've refused to ask, answer that question. Yes. Why have you refused to answer that question? Well, here's why. Because um, I know of no political leader who takes his team on the pitch to play for second best. And here's the thing. Nobody's asking. Nobody is asking Alliance Party if they get enough MLAs and they can go into the executive of right, will they go into the executive or will they go into opposition? Why is nobody asking them? Why is nobody asking the SDLP, will you go into the opposition or will you go into government? Why is nobody asking Sinn Féin, if you're not the largest nationalist party, Will you go into opposition or will you go into to, to, to government? Nobody's asking them. Why is nobody asking them but they're asking me? Because of a lucid, a lucid talk poll. And the lucid talk poll, actually, I spent a week with people telling me it's not fact anyway. It's a load of nonsense. Listen, I'll be clear. So because other people won't answer questions, you're not going to do it either? I know of no political leader who will outline what they intend to do before an election takes place. But I think other than, but, other than say, yeah. I'm aiming to win the election. Yeah, but I think some political leaders would, would say what they would do under certain circumstances. Who? So do you reckon if I went to the Alliance Party and said, if you came second place, would you take Deputy First Minister? They would refuse to answer that question. If you went to a Alliance Party and you said to a Alliance Party, it, because at this moment in time, they, they can't take Deputy First Minister. Okay, right. So just so you're aware. Yeah. Um, so if you went to a Alliance Party and you says, if you get 12 MLAs, are you going to go into opposition <coughs> or are you going to go into government? Do you think it'll answer you? Okay, so if I went to the SDLP and said, if you come second place, will you take Deputy First Minister post? You'd think they wouldn't answer that question. If you went to the SDLP and you say, would you take second, would you take Deputy First Minister to a DUP First Minister? I don't think they would answer you because the SDLP are playing for first. And do you know what? They're just right. I wouldn't ask the SDLP to come out here and say, I'm playing for second. Why does anybody think I as a unionist should come out and say, I'm playing for second? I'll be honest with you, mate. I'm playing to win here. I'm not going through. This is not a game here. You know, if we want to change Northern Ireland, we need people who are leading this country who uh, want to reach out to every single person on this country. Here's, so, here's the criticism, I suppose, that somebody might put to you, yeah. which is uh, the reason you won't answer that question, Doug, is because you're afraid of, of, of some of your voters abandoning you if you say, yes, I will serve as Deputy First Minister. That, that, that seems to me one of the only justifications for why you wouldn't answer the question. Uh, yeah, and I can go back to something else that you said to me, and you said to me, why don't you just tell everybody in your party that our stance on abortion is going to be, we support it, because I'm afraid of losing people. Of course, because people have very ingrained opinions. But that's not, that's not the point. The point is, I am taking a team on the pitch to win. I know if nobody takes a team onto the FA Cup final and says, right guys, when you get on here and you come second, here's what we're going to do. But I reckon if I went to a team in the FA Cup final who were, well, I don't know, I don't know, football, 17th place and said to them, see if you come second, would you take your silver medal? I reckon they'd say yes. If you went to that team and they <clears throat> says yes when we come second, then that the, manager, no, no. If that I manager went to, wouldn't be there for very long. If I went to you, if you came second, would you no. take your silver medal? Would I you, guarantee you they would say yes. They would look at you and say, we're aiming to win. Right, okay. So I would say to you, yes, when I come second, I'll take that. Right. Do you know why? Because you just go out and say, look, <clears throat> them guys are, they don't even think they're going to win because they're going to take their silver medal. Yeah, because it's really unlikely they're going to win. Why? Um, would you be in favour of legalising cannabis? No. Right, okay. Uh, thank you very much, <laughs> everyone. Uh, we're, we're not going to... That was Doug Beatty there, leader of the Ulster Unionist Party, who I spoke to on campus last week.
You can listen to the full podcast of my chat with Doug later this week. Just keep an eye on our socials. Well, that is us for now. Thank you so much for our guests for giving me their time this evening. Uh, Remember, you can follow The Scoop on Facebook, on Instagram and on Twitter. Follow our five weekday podcasts. Check out our online newspaper. And I'll see you back here very soon for The Scoop on Sunday. Thank you so much for your company tonight. Night night.